Let's turn together to read the Word of God in the New Testament in Paul's letter to Titus and in chapter 2. And we're going to read the whole of this chapter. Titus chapter 2 and at verse 1. And as we continue to study the letter uh, of Peter, and we do so in looking at two or three verses at one time, it gives us the opportunity to read other parts of the Bible, uh, which helps us to understand more and more of how consistent the Word of God is, and that what Peter requires in the Word of God, so does Paul, and so do all of the other writers. It's an opportunity to see how the Bible is so connected together. Titus chapter 2 at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Amen is God's word, and we trust that he will bless to us this reading from it. We turn out to praise God with Psalm number 49 in the Scottish Psalter, at verse number 5, Psalm 49, at verse 5. Page 274. Amidst those days that evil be, why should I fear and doubt? When off my heels iniquity shall compass me about. From verse 5 to the verse mark 9 to God's praise.
First Peter and chapter 1, and we're going to read at verse number 18. First Peter 1 and at verse number 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways and inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb with a blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so on. Now we noticed last week as we continue to reflect on Peter's message to these the Christians in Asia Minor in modern Turkey, uh, we saw the way in which uh, the Peter begins by, by writing what God has done for them in verses 3 to 9 of this chapter. And then we saw the way in which he begins at verse number 13 to look at the way in which uh, God works with them and they are working with God because what God has done for them means that they have a responsibility and the responsibility is to live their lives, to conduct themselves in a way which reflects who they are. And from verse 13 to verse 17, we saw the different aspects of the way in which Peter encourages them, calls them to live their lives as the children of God. Because the children in the family are expected to obey their parents and to show the family characteristics in life and so confirm themselves to be the children of God and going back to the essential words of the Old Testament you shall be holy for I am holy when we come to verse 18 onwards we see that Peter goes full circle he's gone from saying what God has done for them to what God is doing with them and going right back now again to what God does for them. And he is doing that in order to bring their whole understanding of their lives as the children of God who are going to live such a life in the world to bring them back to understand that ultimately the cause of their living for God is found in the work of Jesus Christ. And it's important for them to understand that and important for us to understand that. And interestingly, he begins this whole section with that word, knowing. 
He is not telling them something that they didn't know, but he is reminding them of the importance of what they already know. And of course today, the cross of Jesus Christ is not something that we haven't heard about before, but such is the significance of it that time after time we have to remind ourselves of what we already know about the gospel and rubber stamping what God says in his word and praying that he will inscribe that in our hearts so that we will live as the children of God. And so I want to to look at these verses today and to, to think of Christian conduct and the defining deliverance of the cross. Without the cross, we cannot expect anyone to have Christian conduct. But because of the cross, we expect all of the children of God to live in the way that God prescribes. But I think, first of all, that there is redemption. And at verse 18 we read, Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways. It's an interesting idea that uh, Peter begins with an idea that Paul uses also. He begins with the whole idea of ransom. And ransom was the releasing of captives or of slaves on the payment of a sum of money. And once the sum of money was lodged and accepted, then the person who was a slave or the person who was captive was set free. And when we want to understand what Peter is getting to hear and to understand the way in which his readers would hear it, then we need to understand something of the culture in Rome whereby there was a process for fleeing slaves. And the process was one which took place at the temple of the pagan god. And so the money was paid at the temple of the pagan god and from there transferred into the slave's master's account. And as soon as that transfer took place, the slave was set free from his previous master. But now, interestingly, he becomes or he becomes the servant, the slave of the God at the temple. And that's very important for us to understand the whole idea of freedom as we spoke with the children about freedom, to understand freedom. Here is the Roman concept that's the background to how they're going to understand this idea. It is the liberating of slaves so that they're free from their previous master in order to be the slaves of the God of the temple. And when we further read what he's saying, knowing that you were ransomed, we see the way in which Peter is emphasizing in a quiet and subtle way that they are passive when this is taking place. You were ransomed. He's not saying you ransomed yourselves. You were ransomed. And when the Bible speaks in that passive way, more often than not, it suggests to us, it points to the activity of God. And so when Peter is saying this to them, 
knowing that you were ransomed. We can explain that by saying, knowing that you were ransomed by God. And that places the whole picture of the freedom of slaves that Peter is referring to here. It brings us into the Old Testament history of the people of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God is the God who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He did that because of his oath to the Father. And in doing so, he redeemed you from the house of slavery. God is going into Egypt. He has taken the children of Israel out of Egypt, taken them to Mount Sinai, where they are becoming his servants. They were slaves in Egypt, but now they are the servants of God at Mount Sinai, worshipping him, giving their lives to him. And unfortunately, all everything began to fall apart shortly afterwards, with the result that, as we read the history of the people of God, we have from the book of Jeremiah onwards, we have the people of God in exile in Babylon. And when we read about how God is going to bring them back, God himself reminds them that he is the Holy One of Israel, their Redeemer. When we read in Isaiah chapter 41, and these people are in Babylon looking for a Redeemer, looking for something to rescue them from the slavery of the Babylonians, from living life in that strange land, God himself is the Redeemer. God himself is the one who is going to pay the ransom. God himself is the one who is going to rescue them. And against all of that, there is the whole idea of the kinsman redeemer that is laced through the Old Testament where a member of the family can go and rescue his brother from slavery by paying the price so that he's set free. And so that the ransom, the redemption that Peter is referring to, it's filled with the riches of the Old Testament history of the people of God that brings us right back to understanding simply that God alone is a redeemer who gives us redemption. And it is that redemption that is at the center of the way in which they are going to conduct their lives and it is at the center of the way in which we, as the children of God, are going to conduct our own lives. The redemption by the Redeemer who is the Lord God of Israel. And when we think about redemption and the way in which you and I are going to live as the children of God, we have to understand what we are being redeemed from. And interestingly here, there is no mention of being redeemed from sin. The focus is entirely on the way in which they are going to conduct their lives. And we know, of course, that our conduct is dependent on our being freed from sin or not. But the focus here is on the way that they live their lives. And they are being redeemed from living 
a life conforming to one Father into a life that is lived in accordance with the family rules of another Father. They are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. They were futile ways. They were futile in the sense not only that they were worthless, but that they were pointless. And when he goes further to speak of the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, there is the picture not of a life that's lived with a struggle, but it is a life lived in futile ways with energy and with vitality. We are not to see them as a people who were struggling along in an ungodly life. They were full of the energy of that ungodly life. They were satisfied in living that ungodly life. They were living that ungodly life with their heads held high. They knew nothing better than that. That's what was handed down to them. And they rejoiced in living that kind of life. It is the one inherited from your forefathers. It's one word in the Greek New Testament. It's a word that captures fatherhood and handing over. And that's at the center of of this passage where we see that God is the one whom they call upon as father. But here there is a fatherhood where there is a transmission of a, a way of life from one generation to the other, that, that's done with consistency, that's, that's done with conformity, and that's done with a sense of confidence that this is the way in which we ought to live. And, and for ourselves today, that's exactly where we are found. And perhaps difficult to, to analyze that, because so much of of the way that we live our lives has been passed down to us by our Christian heritage and forefathers. And so today, I can be in a Christian community having my life shaped so much by Christianity. And yet what drives me in my heart, what gives me energy and vitality, what gives me confidence in life is living an ungodly life. And so where it's so easy to see the separation where there are people living in Asia Minor who are serving at the pagan temple and there are those who are following the Lord Jesus. It's not quite that simple for you and for me, is it? Because we, we all have that sense of Christian upbringing, that sense of belonging to the church. It's so important and it's so helpful in life. But but we have to to come down to analyse what is it that drives us in our hearts? What what is it that that makes us who we are? I I can think of an operating system. I can try and put an Apple Mac operating system into a, a Windows computer and it will not work. It'll do all kinds of strange things, but it will never work. I can do it vice versa, and the same will be the case. It depends on the operating system. But when 
There is no corruption. The system thrives and works and delivers. And that's what life as a living in, in godliness is like. Living as strangers from God, as Paul, as Paul describes it. It's that kind of life. It's the only way you know how to operate. And any interference with that will cause you problems. And the, the, the way to resolve the problem is not to listen to what is interfering, but it is to remove what is interfering. And don't let anything interfere with the way that I operate my life. And even when it is the gospel itself that we understand, we are so resistant to it in our hearts that we will not accept the gospel itself because it means so much to go by my inner operating system. And here is the, the, the redemption. This is where we need a redemption to change what we are. If the redemption doesn't reach to where we are in our hearts, that makes us live our lives in the way that we do, then there is no change. But the redemption of God is such that it does descend down to where we are in our hearts. And they experience that. They were not the children of God. Now they are the children of God. But there is the danger of corruption in the sense that the world that they have left behind is always lying in wait to welcome them back in it. And so redemption is something that changes me at the very beginning, but it is something that's operating in my life every day of my life as a child of God. And so there are two dangers today as far as this redemption is concerned. The danger that my heart is still living and driven by myself and by my own and godly living and sinful desires. Danger one, to recognize that. And danger two, that if our hearts have already been changed, the danger of slipping back to, to a life that's waiting to swallow us up. A life and a way of life and a world that's hungry to swallow up the children of God. That's got an endless appetite to swallow us up if he could. The redemption. The only way to change our lives, to be taken out from what we inherited from our forefathers and to be taken into what we inherit from God as our Father. The spirit of adoption in our hearts crying out to him, Abba, Father, and living as the children of God. The redemption. Secondly, and connected very closely to that, we have the ransom. There is a ransom price. And Paul, Peter continues his connection with their way of thinking and with their culture. And he says, Ransom from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold. The things that are subject to decay. And at the same time, the things that are so precious 
and sometimes, sometimes, of course, rightly so. We live in a world, in a society, during these days, where cost of living and everything else has gone through the roof and where money is precious because it, it means survival or not in some cases. Not by perishable things like silver and gold. In other words, he is saying this is not what you go down the road and do. This is not what you arrange for, for your master to do along the road in a pagan temple where they take off the resources of the riches and, and where, where it's paid into the temple of the God. This is not like that. It's not done with perishable things at all. Instead, it is done with the precious blood of Christ. Blood. We don't like talking about blood. There's something in us that, that, that turns away from the whole idea of blood. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God explains to the people why blood is important. And he, he tells them that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says that, that the blood is the life I have given for you on the altar. And importantly, it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. If there is no blood, there is no sacrifice. If there is no sacrifice, there is no redemption. If there is no redemption, we are still in our sins. At the very heart of the message of the gospel, there is the fact of sacrifice, of the shedding of blood to cover our sin and to turn away the wrath of God. And in this case, it is nothing less than the blood, the precious blood of Christ. The anointed one of God. The one concerning whom the same Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him up and made him both Lord and Christ. The Christ who sit, sits at God's right hand on God's throne, it is nothing less than his blood that is the ransom price. And it is precious blood. Things can be precious from two perspectives. Things can be precious because of their inherent value. They are precious because of what they are. Things can be precious in the estimation of others. So what is precious in and of itself can be the very thing that's precious to others in their own eyes. But if it wasn't precious in their eyes, it doesn't make the object any less precious because it is, because of its inherent character. And these two concepts come together when we think of, of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is precious in and of itself because of the very character of Jesus because of the person that he is, because of the life that he lived, 
And because he is not only Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Son of God, the blood of Christ. It's the blood of God described in Acts. There's nothing less than the blood of God because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is precious blood because of its inherent value. And it's also precious in the eyes of the beholder because the God who has sent his Son to be our Saviour on the cross is the God who sees the inherent value of, of the blood of Jesus. And in the eyes of God, the blood is precious. God sees the value of it as he sees the, the value of his Son and in whose eyes it is precious. It is the precious blood of Christ. And the God who says through Psalm number 118, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Exceedingly more precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death, death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Precious blood. And today as we think of living our lives as the children of God, conducting our lives in a way in which is pleasing to God, we come back to, to the central thing in, in the way that we do live our lives, that we're going to live as the people of God, that is the blood of Christ. Is it precious to us? It is certainly precious in and of itself. It is precious to God. But what do you think? If you're the child of God, there'll be nothing in life more precious than the blood of Christ that sets you free. And for the child of God, he or she joins with the Father in heaven to look at the blood of Christ and to, to rejoice in, in the preciousness of it. And so in that way, having the same thinking as God, with regard to the blood of Christ. And because of having the same thinking as God, as our Father, then having the life that's lived out from there as those who are the children of God, the precious blood of Christ. What do you think? Is it precious or is it not? As a lamb without spot and without blemish. Nothing was acceptable to God as sacrifice unless it was without blemish. The Passover lamb in Exodus 12 had to be without blemish. The burnt offering in Leviticus 1 had to be without blemish. It had to be pure and perfect. And the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot, speaks about his perfection and speaks about his sacrifice. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He says, God in Isaiah, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before a shearer's dam, so he didn't open his mouth. 
He gave his soul as an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It's the ultimate sacrifice on the altar where Jesus gives his life as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The perfect, precious Lamb of God. And to complete the contrast, the person who redeems the sinner in Asia Minor doesn't go down the road to to pay the price at the pagan temple. No. Christ, our Redeemer, says the writer to the Hebrews, he entered into heaven itself, to the throne room of God, with his precious blood, with, with the sacrifice that he had offered. This is what I have done. He goes with the currency of the family kingdom of God and he places it as it were in the treasures of of God's throne and God's eternal temple and because of that as the children of God today we are freed from the slavery of sin and from the operating system of ungodliness and free now not to do as we please but free to live as the children of God, the ransom price. The only thing that can set us free, that brings us out of our exile from God, and that gives us that exodus out of there and in through the door of God's family and God's kingdom to be the children of God. Redemption ransom and in closing reliability you know sometimes we take actions and very often they are afterthoughts something that we do not just an afterthought but in the light of something that's happened in that moment but Peter wants them to see that God's redemption and ransom price is no afterthought at all. He wants to bring everything back to show them how reliable it is because it is and was in God's eternal plan. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. He was known and it says more than simply saying that God the Father knew God the Son that's natural in the very existence of God if we can allow in our minds that, that work only in time frames if we, if we can think of the existence of God there was never a time when, when the Son of God did not know the Father and when the Father did not know the Son and yet here is in the area and in, in the space of timelessness, there is a point at which the Son was foreknown by God the Father. It's the foreknowing through which 
the readers themselves were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It's the foreknowing that speaks of a master plan. Uh, and all that God is uh, and all that God was comes into the, the, within the boundary of this master plan, his covenant purposes to save a people for himself. And within that covenant purpose, he foreknew his son. He elected his son. He set his son apart within that plan in order to be the redeemer, to pay the ransom price that was so necessary for them. And so he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And when we see Jesus coming into the world, he is coming in deeply conscious that he is the one who has come into the world as one sent by God. I have come to do not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And the whole picture of, of this foreknowing of God in his plan for redemption and the work of the Son has as its footnote the conversation that we have in Zechariah 6 where there is the picture of a priest on his throne and, and God being over the priest on the throne and the council of peace will be between the priest king and God. The reliability and the reliability that is confirmed through the resurrection from the dead in the following verse. And the reliability based on these two factors. That first of all makes it compelling that the children of God ought to live a life that's different to the world. They are compelled and, and they do so as those who understand the ransom price that Christ has paid to set them free. It's compelling towards a life lived for God. And at the same time, it's not only foundational, but it is natural. Because if today we are the children of God, set free from the, our slavery to the God of this world and to sin, to be the children of God. It is natural. And so it's compelling because it is natural. And it's natural because it is rooted in what makes us the children of God. And so we have that sense of, of Christian conduct and the defining influence of the cross of Christ. And today, we go forward as the children of God, learning what God is saying to us about living for him, and learning to examine our own hearts, and to see what drives us, and to see where we may be in danger. And when we see that danger, to come to rejoice and embrace in the deliverance that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God bless his word us to that end and may help us to discover this preciousness and so be enabled every day to devote our lives completely to the Lord Jesus as our Saviour and to God as 
our Father. May bless his word. Let us join together in prayer. Most gracious God, we give thanks to you for the gospel that speaks of the good news of your Son coming into this world to pay, pay, pay such a great price in order to set us free. We rejoice today in that redemption. Give thanks to you for the marvel of that ransom price which cannot be valued in any way, which is acceptable and pleasing to you. May we love the Lord Jesus and love it because of who he is and because of the price that he has paid. And may our lives so day by day be changed to be what is pleasing to you and lived for your glory. So bless your word, we pray, and hear us and accept us for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Holy Psalm is Psalm number 116 at verse number 13 to the end of the psalm on page 396. Psalm 116 in the Psalter on page 396. I'll off salvation, take the cup. On God's name will I call. I'll pay my vows now to the Lord before his people all. To the end of the psalm, to God's praise. Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and forevermore. Amen.